0: Well, welcome everybody uh, to Downtown Harbor Church. My name is John. I am the lead pastor around here. Appreciate you guys joining us on this Sunday morning. So today we are continuing our series, our summer series that we've been calling BC, where we've been talking about what happened before it all happened, specifically those thousands of years before Jesus Christ stepped onto the scene. And every single week, we've been looking at a key figure From the Old Testament, trying to find out more about their life, who they were, and how their life would impact and perhaps even influence our own. So today what I want to do is I want to introduce you to a woman that, if I were a betting man, and I'm not a betting man, nothing against it, but if I were a betting man, I would bet that very few of you are familiar with her story. Now, interestingly enough, She's very important, particularly in the Jewish faith, but you just hear very few sermons preached on Esther. So Esther is found in the book of Esther. She didn't write it, and it's all about her, though, and it's actually one of the more unusual books in the entire Bible. In fact, it is the only book to not mention God. Actually, it's one of two to not mention God, like not even once. But as you're going to see as we kind of go through this story, it is clear that even though God is not mentioned, God is the main actor. God is the one who is sort of behind the scenes, pulling the strings the whole time. Now, I actually like the fact that God is a little bit hidden, if you will, in this story, because I think that's actually more analogous to our own lives. I mean, let's be honest. When we're living our life day to day, we're going to work, you're going to school, you're doing this, you're doing that. I don't know about you, but I mean, regularly speaking, we're not hearing voices from heaven. Okay? We're not, we're not going around seeing burning bushes. We're not going around seeing, you know, waters part before us. And that's because God has will that you and I live by faith and not by sight. Part of the problem with living by faith and not by sight, is that is that we often, if we're not careful, tend to miss all that God is actually doing in our life, around our lives, and through our lives. So my goal for today, or rather I should say my hope for today, as we read what I firmly believe to be the finest story in Scripture, literary speak, literarily speaking, I think it's the finest story written in all through Scripture, My goal is for us to look for the fingerprints of God in your life. Now, we're going to talk at length later on about exactly what this means. But this is the idea of recognizing God's handiwork in our lives when at first it might not be so obvious. So with that in mind, let's just jump right in. We're going to start off at the very beginning. We're going to be in Esther 1.1. So it starts off like this. These events, meaning the story of Esther, happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 120 provinces, stretching from India all the way to Ethiopia. So one of the things that we're going to see today is that the book of Esther is date-heavy. It says it happened in the days of Xerxes. All throughout the book of Esther, it just starts pinpointing these dates, sometimes as specific of saying uh, April 17th or March 7th. And I think these dates are important. I don't think they're there by accident. You see, the story of Esther can actually begin to feel like a fairy tale, but these dates help to ground it firmly in history. Now let's talk about Xerxes for a second. Xerxes is the main character, or one of the four main characters in this story. And even if you haven't read the Bible, um, or even if you haven't heard the story of Esther, you probably know him. Because King Xerxes was the big bad enemy in the blockbuster film 300. Now, this is the movie about how 300 Spartans held off the gigantic Persian Empire at the Battle of Thermopylae great movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to go see it. But the Battle of Thermopylae happened in around 400 BC. And the Battle of Thermopylae actually happened in the background of the story of Esther, which lets us know that if this happened in around 480 BC, that means that Esther's story takes place about 100 to let's say 120 years after the story of Daniel, the story we looked at last week. So the story continues. In the third year of Xerxes' reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, and the celebration lasted for 180 days. It was a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and the splendor of his majesty. So he throws this huge party, basically goes for six months. And when that party's over, he then throws a seven-day after party. And as we all know, the after party, well, that's really where it's all at. And so speaking of this after party, we read that by edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. And I just have a feeling that, you know, DHC members would be lining up in droves to get into this party. But on the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine. He told the seven eunuchs, and by the way, if you don't know what a eunuch is, you can go Google that on your own time. We're not going to get that today. Um, But he goes to these seven eunuchs who attend him, and he goes, hey, would you mind, would you bring Queen Vashti um, to me and have her wear my royal crown? But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. All right, let's pause here for a second because this is important because Vashti's refusal to join the party appears to be a seemingly inconsequential event but in the grand scheme of things this is this decision is the catalyst for the entire story you see what this verse illustrates is this idea that big stores swing on small hinges have you heard this before? Big doors swing on small hinges. It's this idea that there are these events in our lives. There are these moments that happen that we don't really think that much about. But these events, these small things in our lives, ultimately have the potential to alter the course of our lives dramatically. And many times, we don't see these moments until we actually go back and we look for them. So why does she refuse to go? What's going on here? I mean, everyone's having a good time. The wine is flowing. You know, King Xerxes just wants to show off how beautiful she is. I mean, it's a little tacky, but that's how some guys are. You know, so what's going on here? Well, it turns out that when you go back and read the original text, Xerxes didn't want her to come in, you know, uh, just wearing the crown. He wanted her to come in only wearing the crown, yeah. He wanted her to come in naked, wearing the crown. And, and so, you know, when she heard this request, she goes, hold on, let me, let me see if I understand this correctly. You want me, the queen, to go into that room, naked, wearing a crown, in front of all your drunk buddies. Is this what you want? Yes, what he wants. And no, it's not going to happen. So she, so she stands up for herself. She defends herself. She doesn't, she doesn't go. Well, that, that doesn't go over so well. That, that actually made the king furious. And he burned with anger. So Xerxes, he's angry. He's actually embarrassed as well because his officials, they're all there. They see his wife disrespecting him because she refuses his offer. And now the officials are nervous and they go, king, we've got a problem here. I mean, what if word gets out into the empire that y- your queen stood up for herself and and then all of a sudden, All women start demanding respect and and demand to be treated with dignity. Oh, the horror, okay? So what does Xerxes do? He deposes her, takes the crown right off her head, and then he sends out an official decree into the empire saying, look, here's the deal. Legally, by decree, wives must respect your husbands, and if they don't, husbands, you can pull a Ralph Cramden on them, you know? Pow, zoom, send them to the moon, right? Real nice guys, real class acts. So time goes on. We read in Esther 2.1. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree that he made. So this makes it seem like it's kind of the next day. He kind of woke up after this party, you know, is thinking a little bit more clearly, and he sort of regrets what he's done. Well, it's not the next day. It's actually four years later. So what happened? in these four years? How has this guy gone four years without a wife and without a queen? Well, it turns out it was during this four-year period that Xerxes led a military campaign against Greece. It was during this four years that the Battle of Thermopylae happened. Those 300 Spartans, he's been going up against them for the last four years. He's been a little bit preoccupied. But now the war is over. And he's back home and he's feeling a little bit wistful, thinking about the old days, and he wants a wife. So his officials, always wanting to help, come up with an unusual plan. They say to him, let's let's search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. Surprise, surprise, he likes this idea. It says the advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. So this is a, an unusual concept. I mean, you don't really expect to see an episode of The Bachelor smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament, but that's really what you got here. I mean, this is like a Persian beauty pageant. Now, I don't want to spoil the sort of story for you, but this pageant, just to put this in your mind right now, this pageant is God working behind the scenes to save his people, before they even need saving. But you'll see what I'm talking about in just a bit. Scene change, right? Enter our next set of characters. At that time, when all this is going on with the pageant, uh, at that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer, short for Jerry. His family had been among those who, this is interesting, his family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Is any of that sounding familiar? Yeah, that's our connection to Daniel. So, according to this, it turns out that Mordecai's family, probably his parents, maybe even his grandparents, were captured alongside Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were brought from Jerusalem into the Babylonian Empire, which is now the Persian Empire. Now, if you remember, Daniel had his name changed to a Babylonian name. Well, scholars believe that Mordecai's name is actually probably pronounced Mardukaya, which is Babylonian, after the Babylonian um, god Marduk. The more you know. (whistles) Continues. This man, that's uh, Mordecai, had a very beautiful and lovely cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. So we finally meet our leading lady, Esther. And Esther, we believe, is actually her Babylonian name, which comes from Ishtar, which I, I think is the god of, of love. It had a couple of different gods, but I, I think it was the god of love or war. I don't know. All right, so let's make sure we're all kind of on the same page here because we've heard a lot of names so far. You've got Mordecai. He's the uncle slash adopted father of Esther. They're both Jewish. They are living in the Persian Empire, which is extremely anti-Semitic, as evidenced last week by the story of Daniel. Continues. As a result of the king's decree about the beauty pageant, Esther, along with many other young women, uh, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa. So because of this pageant, Esther And what scholars believe was upwards of 1,400 other women. They get sent to the palace, um, and they're just kind of living at the palace. And um, while they're there, before they get a chance to get the rose, so to speak, before they get their chance with the king, they all get makeovers, which is interesting. We get a a behind-the-scenes picture of this. It says, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, She was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months of oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes. So after having been doused for six months straight in perfume, these women are now wearing just a little bit less cologne than Adam Tuckworth. Just just like a touchlet, I told him I was going to say it. He goes, you know, go lean into me. Who, by the way, when you give him a ride in your car, makes your seatbelt smell like him for the next three weeks. Okay. so what's what's our what's our lesson um, as Christians here? What can we what can we learn from this right here as Christians? Well, we can learn that that fragrance should be discovered and uh, not announced, okay? Listen, we are nothing if not practical here at this church. If I can taste your cologne from the next room, chances are you're probably wearing too much. Of it. Okay, off that subject now. Um, so Esther, she's all dolled up. She's covered in, in myrrh. She's covered in, in perfume. She is ready for her big night. So Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter, and the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. In fact, he was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared, queen, declared her queen instead of Vashti. And just like that, she is now made queen of an empire of some 50 million subjects. I wonder if God had something to do with all of that. So let's recap um, who we've got so far. We got the powerful King Xerxes. We got the good guy, Mordecai. We got the underdog, Esther. Now we need a villain. Enter Haman. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite over uh, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. So we meet this guy, Haman, and he is basically the prime minister of the Persian Empire. He's the second most powerful man in this empire. And it says that he's an Agagite. Well, what is an Agagite? Well, we don't need to get into the specifics of what that means. But historically speaking, the Agagite people hate the Jews. They are sworn arch enemies. So keep that in mind for what you're about to see. And we also learn that Haman is an egomaniac. Take a look. It says all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. So it kind of paints this picture that, you know, Mordecai's walk. I'm sorry, that Haman's walking down the road and people are bowing down before him they're kissing his ring, they're handing them fruit from his cart, you know, it's like a scene he had a godfather or something like that, but then he gets to Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow, Mordecai's just like, hey man, and Haman did not think that was funny. Okay, so why, why didn't he bow? What's going on there? Well, it, it turns out that in the Persian empire, if one were to bow to a figure of authority, that means that you are recognizing that person as divine. And Mordecai couldn't do that. And I just happened to, you know, have to wonder, was, was his conviction emboldened by what he knew about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not bowing to that statue? Now as for not showing him respect, I don't really know what that means, but I have to imagine it has something to do with the fact that he's an agagite, all right? This is like the Hatfields and the McCoys. The story continues. When Haman saw that Mordecai, would not bow down or show him respect. He was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality. So now he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish. So he decided that it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. It wasn't enough to just beat this guy up for insubordination. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire. Of Xerxes. I mean, think about the far reaching effects of Haman's pride and and hatred. I mean, because one man slighted him in his eyes, he wants to wipe out the entire nation of Jews. Well, he can't do this without the help of King Xerxes. So, Haman approached King Xerxes and said, "Uh, King, here's the deal there's a certain race of people scattered throughout the provinces of your empire, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. He's lying. This is not true. He says they refuse to obey the laws of the king, so it's not in the king's interest to let them live. So he lies to Xerxes. He manipulates King Xerxes, and and he says, look, you got to exterminate the Jews. You need to get rid of them. They they are not following your laws, And, and I didn't I'm not going to show you this because it's a whole long conversation. But then he goes and actually kinds of greases the wheel, so to speak, by bribing King Xerxes by giving him 10,000 talents. Now that phrase probably sends off a little bit of a red flag in your head because Jesus made a whole parable about the 10,000 talents. Well, I looked, there's no connection. I mean, I wish there were. That would be a great connection. There's not. So Xerxes listens to the plan and agrees with this plan. He agrees to carry out this mass genocide. And so dispatches, you know, official decrees, were sent out by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. And this was scheduled to happen on March 7th of next year, there's those dates that I'm talking about. So not only do you find out that you and, and, and your family are going to be killed and slaughtered and annihilated, but now you actually know the day it's gonna happen? Ah, oh, this is just awful, I mean, this is, this is horrendous. So while this official decree is, is, is sent out of the empire, it says that the king and Haman sat down to drink put a couple of cold ones back, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. Everybody was in a full panic. The Jews, they feared for their lives. But God has been preparing for this moment for years. You see, before the decree had been signed, before the bribes had been paid, before Haman's pride had been injured, Before Mordecai refused to bow, before Esther had become queen, and before the beauty pageant had even been thought up, God emboldened Vashti to stand up for herself, which put into motion a plan to save the Jews before they even knew that they needed saving. It is absolutely amazing. So this Holocaust is announced. Mordecai. Gets wind of it. And when Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on burlap and ashes, and he went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. So this is a standard Jewish response to bad news. This is, this is how they would mourn. Um, now word gets back to Esther. Her attendants say, Hey, Esther, your your uncle. He's not doing well. He's out there and he's mourning. And so she wants to find out what is going on. So she sends one of her attendants out to speak to Mordecai. And Mordecai told the attendant the whole story, including the exact amount, that 10,000 talents, the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Uh, Mordecai hands the decree to the attendant he says make sure esther gets this make sure esther reads it make sure she understands it and then mordecai does one more thing it says that he also asked the attendant to direct esther to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people now here's the thing this is a big ask It's a big ask for any number of reasons. I mean, remember in the very beginning with the whole Vashti thing, there's now a decree, an official decree that women, they can't speak out against their husbands. Number one, that's a problem. Number two, up until this point, um, Esther's Jewish identity has been hidden. And And if she does this, she's toast. But there's a third reason and a more pressing reason that really complicates this request. She tells Mordecai, uh, Mordecai, anyone who appears before the king, which is what you're asking me to do, anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days, basically. She's like, Mordecai, I love you, but are you trying to send me on a death mission? What are you trying to get me killed? Mordecai gives his niece a reality check. Listen to these words. He says, don't think for a moment. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace that you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arrive from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Oof! Well, when you put it like that, he's like, look, Esther, you have the opportunity right now to potentially save the Jewish people. And then Mordecai utters what is one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture. He says, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. What if Everything in your life, every decision, every victory, every defeat, every promotion, every layoff, every beautiful moment, every painful regret, we're all to prepare you for right now. It's an entirely new way of looking at your life. I mean, all of a sudden, a life that is just filled with seemingly random occurrences, all comes together now like a beautifully woven tapestry. I mean, what Mordecai is saying here is is something that we've been saying at DHC almost since the very beginning, that only you can do what you can do with what you have. How many times have we said this? You probably have this memorized by now. But so often, we look at our lives, we look at our situations, and we wish it were different. We wish we lived in a different neighborhood. We wish we had a different education. Basically, we want what everybody else has. But what if God made you as you are for such a time as now? Now, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't. I don't know what's coming around the corner for you. But neither do you. But the question that I have based on the story of Esther is, are you willing to say yes? Are you willing to act? Are you willing to speak up? I mean, right now, right now, today, in this moment, is the Holy Spirit pressing down on you like a ton of bricks because you've been ignoring his call? Let me just straight up ask you, what has God called you to do that you haven't been doing? I don't know what it is, but you do. And you've tried to run from it. You've tried to hide from it because it seems too risky or it seems out of your league. I mean, does God want you to speak up uh, out against, uh, you know, I don't know, injustice in your community? D- d- does God want you to speak out about some unethical practices at your job? Students out there, have you turned a blind eye to bullying? Does God want you to step up and shut that bully down? Now, according to scripture, here's one thing that I do now. I know that God has equipped you, each and every single one of you, with gifts and abilities and a platform, but it's your choice to use them. And maybe he's given you those gifts for such a time as this. So Esther is convicted and she's convinced. And she says, all right, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. That's a religious practice. She says, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, my maids and I will do the same. Now, here's why this is interesting. We may have gifts and talents from God, but without the power of God behind us, those gifts are meaningless. They really are. And Esther recognized this. And she's like, look, guys, here's the deal. We've got to fast. We've got to pray. We've got to come together. And we've got to make sure that God is a part of everything that we are about to do. And when that's done, she says, though it is against the law, I, We'll go in to see the king. And if I must die, I must die. What an amazing picture of faith and courage. Now, I don't want to say that Esther's courage had been waffling, okay? But the potential dangers, it did cause her to have a little bit of concern. But when the time arrived, she jumped into action. Now, I once heard it said that character is not made in crisis, it's revealed. I like that. And I actually think there's some truth to that. And I once heard a pastor say, now this is super churchy, but I think it's really good. He once said that um, Christians are like tea bags; They don't know what they're made of until they're in hot water. <laughs> I go, well, that's, yeah, I mean, I think it's true. I, I, I think that we learn a lot about ourselves and our faith in times of trouble. Now, unfortunately, I've spoken to a lot of people who have lost their faith during times of crises. And and maybe right now you are one of those people. Now, when I hear that someone has lost their faith in a time of crisis, I I feel for them. I feel bad that they have to go through the things that they went through. But on the other hand, when I hear that someone has lost their faith in a time of crisis it might surprise you to know that my reaction is to think, good, that's a a good thing. Because a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Somewhere along the way, part of your foundation had some loose bricks in it, and that's okay. Maybe you had inherited a faith from your parents. Maybe it was never really your own faith. Maybe, Maybe you had sort of built your faith on circumstances, rather than God's promises. Whatever the case may be, here at DHC, we can all work together to make sure that we all have a firm foundation built on Jesus Christ. Now, Esther had this firm foundation built on God. She knew that ultimately he was in charge, whether she lived or whether she died. And so it says, on the third day, there's that third day, on the third day, Esther, put on her royal robes, entered the inner court of the palace. The king was sitting on his royal throne, facing the entrance. Ooh, the tension. What's going to happen? When he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out that golden scepter. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. She's safe for now. And the queen asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. So Esther replies and she says, well, King, I'd actually love to invite you and and Haman, the two of you, um, to a banquet tonight that I am preparing specifically for you guys. So Xerxes says, yes, Haman is thrilled that he got asked so he's gonna come later that night during the banquet while they were drinking wine the king said to Esther now tell me what you really want what what is your request he can sense that she's holding back he's like come on I I know this wasn't about me just coming to a banquet so what do you need from me what what, what can I what can I do for you here's her moment so she pauses she gathers her strength and she says well my king My deepest wish is that she stops and she calls an audible and she says, um, please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet. I'll prepare for you. Then I will explain what this is all about. Hold on a second. Wait, a second banquet. What, What are we, what are we doing? Esther? What do you, you know what you have to say. Why aren't you saying, what is going on here? Why is she, what, what happened here? Well, theologians look at Esther's actions here and they believe what this is. It's really for us. It's a, a lesson on the fact that timing is everything, particularly when it comes to the things of God. Clearly, Esther sensed the time wasn't right, that, that one false move in this whole thing was over. And I think there's a lesson in that for us because when it comes to sort of, The things of God, if God has kind of put something on your heart, you can have the right conversation at the wrong time and get the exact opposite effect you were looking for. I mean, this goes for, you know, difficult conversations we could have with our spouse or our boss or our kids or with our parents or even someone about Christ. Timing is everything. So let me wrap up this story for you um, because I want to bring it to an end. So the second banquet comes around. Xerxes is there. Haman is there. The time is right. And Esther speaks up. She says, if I have found favor with the king and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill and slaughter and annihilate us. She just lays it all out there on the line. And Xerxes is stunned. Who would do such a thing? He cries out. And Esther reaches down deep and says, This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And boom, Xerxes blows his lid. He jumps up, storms out of the room. Now, Haman is left alone with Esther, okay? And what happens? Haman throws himself at Esther's feet, grabs her feet, and starts begging for mercy. And the irony, you can't miss it, that all of a sudden Mordecai, I'm sorry, Haman is now bowing at the foot of a Jewish person. Xerxes comes back into the room. He sees Haman all over Esther's feet. He thinks she's trying to attack her. What does he do? He takes Haman and he impales Haman on a 70-foot tall pole that Haman actually built to kill Mordecai on. There is more irony for you. So the story ends, not with the decree um, of genocide being rescinded, it couldn't Persian laws couldn't be rescinded but a new decree was issued and in this new decree Xerxes commanded all Jewish people to defend their lives and that put the fear of god into everyone effectively canceling out that genocidal decree Esther saved her people so what's the practical what do you do with a message like this. Um, If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So the first practical um, is as about as practical as one can get and it's this. I want you to read Esther. Okay, This is a phenomenal story. As I said, this is probably the best story in the entire Bible. It is so well- written. There are so many twists and turns and little hidden nuggets. There's so much irony. There is humor. There is wisdom. It is an incredible story. I did not do the story justice today. Trust me. I really want you to read it. And it's only seven pages. So I I think you can handle it. Because if they had made the story of Esther into a Netflix series, let me tell you something, you would binge it. So go do yourself a favor and read it. Now, here's the other thing that I want you to focus on this week and and perhaps make it a practice for the rest of your life. And we touched on this in the very beginning. What I want you to do, or what I would love for you to do, I should say, is I want you to search for God's fingerprints in your life. So what you're gonna see, or perhaps you even saw, but what you'll see um, at greater detail when you go and read it, because I know you're gonna read it, um, what you're gonna see is that the story of Esther is built on accumulating series of seemingly coincidental events that we as readers know that God is behind. And in our own lives, I think that's important to know because in our own lives, I think it's difficult to often connect the dots back to God. But if you take a step back, all right? If you take a step back from your life and and, and you look at your life as though it were a painting on the wall, you will begin to see the brushstrokes of God in your life. You will see his fingerprints all over the place. Let me, let me tell you my story um, to show you an example of how this works. So 20 years ago, I started college at um, Wake Forest University up in North Carolina. And I had always wanted to be an investment banker on wall street I'm from new jersey that's just what one of the jobs, you know people want to do so I, I always wanted to be an investment banker on wall street so in the beginning of sophomore year of college that's when you sort of declare your your major and so i declared it's a business major and um i was on my way and everything was smooth sailing i mean things were looking good i could see the future and and then something happened specifically intro to financial accounting happened. And for the first time in my life, I failed. This is the actual transcript. There's that F. Now, here's the thing. It's just a point of fact. I had never really gotten anything below a a B minus in my entire life. I was a a good student. And now an F? I'm not even a D, an F. This made no sense. It was painful. It was discouraging. And honestly, it was, it, was, it was scary. And at that time, I had no idea what was going on. But looking back now, I could see the fingerprints of God all over it. Do you know what this F actually is? It's an example of the fact that big doors swing on small hinges. But for that F, my life's path would have been completely different but one grade changed my life that f which shook me to my core caused me to pray and actually examine my gifts and talents and so i dropped my business major and i picked up religion but the story gets better so while at wake forest university i was going to a church there called um calvary baptist church not related to the calvary here calvary baptist church Um, and during those four years the pastor at that time was none other than dr gary chapman of the five long languages yes he was my pastor it was an amazing opportunity to hear his teaching for four years almost every single sunday now towards the end of my college um, career there i was getting ready to graduate and i was getting ready to move to fort lauderdale so i went up to dr chapman and I said, Dr. Chapman, um, I'm moving to Fort Lauderdale. Can you give me a recommendation as to where I should go to church? Because I don't know anything about this city. And without missing a beat, with no hesitation, he said, Yes, First Baptist, Fort Lauderdale. So that's where I went. And, and I had met um, Dr. Larry Thompson. And we had lunch and we become friends and he encouraged me to go to seminary so i started going to seminary he offered me a job there and it was while i worked at first baptist fort lauderdale that i met none other than adam duckworth and christina cooper and here we are today now along the way all of that just seemed like random events but now it is so obvious that god was with me the whole time working things together for my good. So this week, I want you to explore your journey. Go looking for God, and you'll find him. And when you finally recognize that he's been with you all along, when you realize that everything you went through had a divine purpose, maybe then you realize that everything happened for such a time as this. And I don't know what that means for your life, but I have a feeling you do. And I want to encourage you that God, that if God has led you to do something, have the faith and the courage of Esther to say yes. Because you don't know what or who hangs in the balance. Let me pray for you. Dearly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come together today. I want to thank you for the technology that even though we can't meet in person, we can still worship you, Lord, and grow together. God, I want to thank you for the story of Esther. I I want to thank you, Lord, that it opens our eyes. what's actually happening behind the scenes, Lord. That you are with us. You have never left us. That you have a plan for our life. That you are working everything together for good. I pray that every single person right now, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would lift the veil. That they could see you working in their lives. That you have given them opportunities and education and experiences and families, gifts, abilities, and a platform. Perhaps For such a time as this, Lord, give them the courage to act in faith and say yes to whatever you've called them to do, God. And I pray that in doing that, in saying yes, you are glorified and this world is changed. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.